Well, that's a uh, very appropriate song to sing as I get the privilege of introducing our speaker for this morning because George Peltier is one of the most humble men I know and also one of the most godly men I know. So you're in for a treat this morning as George comes and shares with us. George was an elder for many years here at Cole. He also was an interim pastor up in Fairfield Community Church for five years. He's done ministry of all kinds in this body here at Cole. He's now an elder emeritus, which means that physically he's not able to carry out the duties of an elder, but we commend him to you as a man of wisdom that you can uh, look to for insight and godly wisdom. Um, George has experienced a lot in his life. One of the things he went through was a brain tumor that left part of his face paralyzed. You'll notice that. But if you'll listen closely, God will greatly bless you as you listen to this man as he shares his heart with us. Let me do a scripture reading and then I'll invite George up. Our scripture reading this morning is John chapter 16, verses 8 through 15. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. Let's welcome George, shall we? There we go. You'll notice I sit down. That's I've got diabetes and I'm losing control of my legs. So excuse me. Love you still all the same. <laughs> you know that time when they took three of us, uh, Harden Young and Claude Levitt and myself, and called us Elder Emeritus. You know at the time. I thought, that's the fanciest thing I've ever been called. <laughs> you know, it's just the church's way of saying, in a kind and gentle way, old guy. <laughs> you know, getting old is a very unique experience. I've never been old before. You only get one chance at being old. One of the sad things about getting older is you begin to lose your friends. You know, God called them home. I heard someone a little bit older than me recently that said, I've lived so long that all my friends in heaven probably think I didn't make it. (laughs) I remember some of my friends that I've lost you do too, I'm sure. Claude Levitt, Hyden Young, J. 
Jojan Kirkpatrick, Pat Mitchell, just to name a few. One good thing about getting older is you get a chance to learn a lot. That's if you want to. A few of the things that I've learned. One, you're not able to do the same things you used to do when you were younger. I can remember in my teens I was training to be a boxer and I would work an eight-hour shift during the day and then get up at six in the morning and go out and run five miles, you know, and shadow box with weights in my hands and the whole bit. I still get up at six o'clock, but I make it to the kitchen and make coffee. <laughs> That's the way life is when you get older. I also learned that it takes an awful lot of dedication to make a marriage work the way God wants it to. Ephesians 4, Scripture tells us to never let the sun go down on your anger. And my wife and I take that pretty seriously. We even have a magnet that we put on the refrigerator that says, don't go to bed mad, stay up and fight. <laughs> now, I learned that if I learned to laugh about something, sometimes I remember it a little bit better. It's interesting, that statement is so ridiculous that every time I see it, it reminds me of what God said about going to bed mad. I have different methods that we've learned over the years, my wife and I, on being affectionate to one another. And when we're holding hands, and we often do, a lady in my Nampa Girls Group taught me this. If I'm holding my wife's hand, I squeeze it four times. That says, do you love me? And she'll squeeze my hand back three times. I said, yes, I do. Now I'll squeeze her hand two times, and I'll say, how much? And she should take both hands and try to squeeze my hand just as hard as she can. When it comes my turn and she started it, and it comes my turn to say how much, I tell her you don't want to know. I might hurt your hand. Just little things that make a, a marriage work. Another thing I've learned, God doesn't always answer my prayers the way I would like to have them answered. You know, I want things to turn out so-and-so or such a way. doesn't always work that way. God has other plans. For instance, I asked God to make me patient. I had a big block of being patient, waiting for people to do things, or waiting for things to happen. And I wanted to be patient instantly, you know, zap. I'm patient. didn't happen that way. God put me in places and circumstances that made me learn patience. For instance, when I'm in the grocery store and I'm looking for the shortest line to check out, you know, and, and I finally find one that's fairly short and I get in that line, I'm waiting to check out, and somebody up front is questioning the price of an item. 
and they have to send for the supervisor to check the prices. And that's not enough, but they send somebody back to the aisle to check what the price is back there. All the time I'm saying, patience, George, patience. Now, how about something new is going on, at least to me. How about the people that decided to take their cart for a stroll? You know, they walk alongside of it instead of push behind. I never realized that they don't understand they're blocking the aisle. They're taking two people wide. And I'm trying to get by and want to get by and I'm saying, patience, George, patience. I learned something else that's kind of a useless piece of information, but interesting. Never, ever try to baptize a cat. But you know, the most important thing that I've learned, seriously, I've learned that God loves me. He loves me not because of what I've done, or even because of what I've refrained from doing. God loves me because of who He is. Scripture tells me that He is love. He's the originator of love. He's the one that brings all love to this earth. So regardless of my performance, God loves me. And I'm going to tell you, each and every one of you, God loves you equally as much. He is the abundance of love. He lavishes it on you. Regardless of your circumstances, regardless of the way you're performing or not, he loves you. If you don't remember anything else of what I say today, remember that. God loves you. Well, since I only get one chance to get old, I want to get it right. I want to make it count for something. I want to be a blessing to as many people as I can. One way I can do that is to answer a question that puzzled me ever since I was just a young boy. Why are we here? Why did God put us here? Well, I think I really knew the answer, but I've never been able to put it into words. And my daughter sent me an email a few months back. It was an interview of Rick Warren. He's the pastor of Saddleback Church in, in Southern California. And he says this, when people ask me, what's the purpose of life? I answer, in a nutshell, It's preparation for eternity. That's the reason we're here. We're not made to last forever. God wants us to be with him in heaven. One day my heart's going to stop, and that'll be the end of my body, but it won't be the end of me. I might live for 60 or 100 years on this earth, but I have uncountable years 
in each entity. So this is just a warm-up pack. It's a dress rehearsal. God wants us to practice here on earth what we will do forever in eternity with him. We were made by God and for God. Until you figure that out, life won't make much sense. Life is a series of problems, I've found. Either you're in one now, or you're coming out of one, or you're about ready to go into another one. And the reason for that is that God is more interested in your character than he is in your comfort. God is more interested in making you holy than he is in making you happy. Oh, you can be reasonably happy here on earth. We do have good times, good spells, and things work well, and we're happy. But you see, that's not the goal of life. The goal of life is to grow in character, to grow in Christ-likeness. So if that's true, and I believe it is, then how am I to live? Well, before I answer that, I want to tell you a little bit about myself. I was born in a small town in Oklahoma on a Sunday. My mother, she was age 17 at the time, began labor on Saturday, and she was taken to the hospital. But because my dad was out of town, he was a long-distance truck driver, he wouldn't be home until Sunday evening, she decided she would not have that baby until he came home. So somehow she stopped her pains and was sent home. With the result, of course, I was born early the next morning at home. Sunday morning. Well, when Dad came home, there I was, curled up next to my mom in bed. Mama laying down in the bed. And Dad came in, and she was trying to tell him, this is your son. He said, ah, oh, she's kidding me. That's just a doll. And she's just playing a game with me. But she finally convinced him that this really was his son. And Dad uttered those unforgivable words. God, she's ugly. <laughs> of course, my mother burst out into tears. But I probably was. I, I was red as a beet, as I understand. I had a mop of black hair. And they painted my eyes with tincture of iodine. So I had these great big black eyes. It was, and I probably did look a mess. It was kind of a fright. But that Sunday was Easter Sunday. Every 11 years, I would have a birthday on Easter Sunday. 11 years old? birthday on Easter Sunday. 22, there it was again, and it stopped. And I haven't had a birthday on Easter Sunday since. 1953, the last time. I recently found out that in 2015, it will be on my birthday again. If God allows me to be here, I'll be 84. 
praise the Lord. Well, I almost grew up in a church. Uh, we actually lived in the lower part of a church in California called the Upper Room Tabernacle. My parents were the caretakers of the church. And Mom was a strong one, as faith in God was concerned. She was the one that really hung on to God. My dad, God love him, had the problem that a lot of Indians have a addiction to alcohol and he fought that all of his life but mom believed with all of her heart Romans 8:28 that says we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love him she trusted that that was her life she realized that all the good things in her life, all the bad things in her life, God used them and caused them to form something good in her life. My parents also sang almost every Sunday in church. They sang either the duet or quartet. Well, I was brought up around a lot of music, a lot of things going on. Well, but when I was about 15... I thought I knew everything I needed to know, so I quit school. And I went to work for a steel reinforcement supplier that was supplying the reinforced bars for the freeway overpasses in Los Angeles. I was rich. 98 cents an hour. And time and a half for overtime. Wow! That was more than I could even dream of. The sad thing was, I also walked away from God. But I found out later, of course, he didn't walk away from me. My mother tried to talk some sense into me, but I was a very headstrong young man. But she never gave up praying for me. That was constant. I remember one time my oldest sister, I have four sisters, my oldest one came into the house and she said, Oh, my life is so messed up. Mom, have you been praying for me again? <laughs> of course, my mother just said, Well, sure I have, honey. I always pray for you. Well, 13 years later of thereabouts, I found myself with a very, very messed up life. I was divorced, alone, not a very happy camper. I was back in school because I learned I wasn't as smart as I thought I was. I would work all day at a job and or all evening I should say at a swing shift in a place called Continental Can and then go to school all day. Continental Can is an interesting place. If you take a, a, a empty tin can and drop it on the concrete and listen to the noise that it makes and multiply that by oh, maybe a hundred thousand times. That's the noise level that was going on in that place that we were working. It was so bad that you uh, used cotton in your ears to muffle the noise to keep from going deaf. Well, one day I was working the swing shift and 
I looked over and 30 feet away is a really nice looking young lady. And I noticed how good looking she was and how good she was at ignoring me. <laughs> but I kept thinking that maybe, man, that's somebody I might want to know. And so I, I caught her eye one time and I, she looked over and I said, what's your name? And she looked puzzled for a moment and I said, what? So I, I should work my mouth better then, but I enunciated the words very clearly. What is your name? And she answered again, what? <laughs> I said, well, this isn't going to work. So I loaded I load up my machine so I could take a break and get over there. I walked over to her machine and said, what's your name? And she said, Frida. So I walked back to my machine in the book I wrote F-R-I-T-A, like Frida's, you know. What did I know? Anyway, I, I was able to talk her into uh, going to a dinner dance that the company was putting on a little bit later. And so consequently, after I learned to know her better, I really, really, let me skip myself around here. I realized there was really something special about her. Not only was she good looking, still is, but she had an inner beauty that was beyond something that you could see on the surface. There was something about her that appealed to me, that made me want to know her better. I said, wow. I learned after a period of time that she was a widow. Her husband, on the way home from work, about two years prior to that meeting of my meeting her, was killed on the way home from work in a traffic accident. And about ten months after that, she lost her seven-year-old son, the middle son that she had. Three children, she lost the middle one. Now, here was somebody that by the world standards at least, should be bitter, should be angry. The world is done wrong, you know. That's the way the world feels. But she didn't. And she wasn't angry. She was laughing most of the time and happy, joyful to be around. You see, she had a strong belief in God that he takes everything in her life, good or bad, and causes it to be good for those who love it. Where did I heard that before? I knew this was someone that I wanted to know better. Well, I finally convinced her that she should marry me. And somehow I would make her happy again. We were married on the 26th of December, 1959. That's the day after Christmas. And we did that because the church was already decorated. And we didn't have to decorate it. You see, we both had a very strong sense of being practical by that time. 
For about two months after we were married, she would take the kids and dress them up and take them off to church, and I would stay home. I finally realized how dumb that was, and I finally started going to church with her and found my way back to God. See, looking back, I know God put her just so I could see her at that workplace. God caused her to be where I would change my life. Well, I went to work for the city of Long Beach and worked for them for 20 years. Uh, due to health and everything, I took an early retirement and we came to Moody. I told that in my last time I talked to everybody. When I came here, I, I want to let you know I did not jump right into ministry. That <laughs> was the furthest thing from my mind. But I did have a strong sense of wanting to help the church in some way. Well, the sound system needed somebody to help in the sound system. So I began to step in and work with the sound people on Sundays. And eventually that became a real big thing in my life. When we moved into this building, that was back when we were still meeting in what they used to call the fireside room. But when we moved into this building, a lot of the wiring that's done in here I was able to do because that's what I was taught working for the city of Long Beach. I used the skills God gave me out here to apply to God's work here. That's how you begin ministry. That's how you know where you're supposed to be. Apply yourself the way God has used you already in the world and you'll see where he wants to lead you from there. Well, the praise hymn singers, and Sally, of course, remembers them, were having groups being called into the mountains and places, these small rural churches, to sing for the small churches. And they needed somebody to run the sound system for them as they, they took everything with them and they set it up and, and ran it. And, I was, I was free. I didn't have a whole lot on my bill. So I started going with them. And I fell in love with the small churches in Idaho. There's something, I don't know, about being in the front lines, if you will, in the small churches. So I decided I would like to find a way to help them better. And I started working with the study classes here at Paul, begin to learn more about what God was all about, and then wanted to apply that in a small church somewhere. And we went to uh, Fairfield and applied up there for an interim pastor. And that was only supposed to be for a short time, you know. We were there for five years. We drove up on Thursday and came home on Sunday for five years. My wife, God bless her, she's more than you can imagine. Let me tell you a little bit about her. When we were meeting with the elders, they had an interview process where my wife and I were both being interviewed. 
she told him right up front, she said, I don't sing, I don't play the piano, and I don't lead Bible study groups. You see, most of these small churches are hoping to get a twofer, you know, both husband and wife in ministry. And that's good when it works. That's wonderful. But if it's not there, for goodness sakes, be brave enough to tell them right away. It's, it's wonderful to have two people working together in ministry. But it doesn't always work. It doesn't always happen. Another time we were on the way home on a Sunday, and my wife told me that she was in the women's Sunday school class that morning, and one of the ladies asked her, what would your husband like to be called, pastor or reverend? And my wife says, well, I think he would rather be called George. You see, she knew my heart. She knew I didn't want to place any emphasis on me. I wanted to place all my emphasis on Christ. I laughingly told her on the way home, no, I wanted to be called Honorable Wright Reverend. <laughs> well, back to that question. If that's really true, what I read about, what Rick Warren said, how am I to live? What am I to do? How am I to work for God this year? Well, Rick goes on to say in his interview, when I get up in the morning, I sit on the edge of my bed and I say, Lord, if I don't do anything else today, I want to know you better and love you more. I want to know you better and love you more. You see, God didn't put us on earth to fulfill a to-do list. He's more interested in what I am than what I do. You see, that's why we're called human beings, not human doings. Well, I've taken what he said in my own life. I try to remember every day and sometime during the day to ask God to help me to know him better and to love him more. And I also know not to beat myself up when I forget to do it. You see, I, I don't always remember. And I'm always pounding myself on the head and saying, Dummy, you forgot again. And I don't think God likes that. I think he wants me just to be happy with how many times. I do remember. Well, as my buddy here read this morning out of John 16, Jesus is talking about what the Holy Spirit is going to do when he comes. In fact, I like to call it his job description. I said, I want to help the Holy Spirit. That's what I want to do. Now you realize that's pretty audacious to say something like that. What I really am saying is, with his help, I want to help him. So I'm only call, I'm going to talk about two of the verses that Jackson read. In verse 8, he says the Holy Spirit will come, when he comes, he will convict or convince 
the world concerning sin. Uh, that's a little above me. I don't think I can do that very well. So that's probably not what I want. You notice though he says there's one particular sin that he's going to convict the world of? That sin is disbelief in Jesus Christ. Most people don't think that's a sin. You know, they don't realize how serious that is. That's probably the most influential sin that you can have in your life is not believing in Christ. Because that blocks you then from all the blessings that God can give you. It keeps you from being what God wants you to be. And then down in verse 14, he says, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will glorify me. Ah, now that's something I can do. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about what the word glory means in Greek. I, I always thought glory meant, you know, like shine a big light on him or put uh, sprinkles all over him or, or, you know, somehow like on the 4th of July, make him glorious. That's not what the Greek meaning of that word is, though. David Roper helped me a lot. One time when he was teaching class, he said he's gone to Greece and he sometimes loves to walk through old graveyards and read the inscriptions on there. Sometimes it helps what he wants to think about. And he came to this one tombstone and it had a list of things that this gentleman had done. Oh, he'd done a lot in his life. He'd been the, in the town council for years. He'd been the mayor for years. And the very bottom it said, this was his doxa. That's the Greek word for glory. He was saying this was his worth. This was his value. You see, I can help people understand the value of knowing Christ. I can help people understand how worthwhile it is to love him, how desirable it is, how much you gain by loving Christ. That's what I want to do. It says two things I want you to remember. The first, of course, God loves you beyond anything you can imagine. The second, love him back. You will learn to know him better the more you love him. And let me close by saying, if you haven't really had a chance to know me on a close and personal relationship, you haven't missed very much. But if you miss knowing Jesus Christ and having a personal relationship with him, you've missed the most important relationship that this world has to offer. Nothing is more important than knowing him and loving him. Nothing. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you again for that chance to tell people about my love for you. I pray that you would instill in everyone's heart here today that 
abundant love that you have for them and how rewarding it is to love Jesus. God bless everyone here today. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you, George. Can we thank George for sharing his life with us? Yes, sir.